Well, you're welcome uh, to uh, City Church. We've somehow branded this uh, Theology Tuesday. Uh, we're so thankful for you tuning in, especially if you tuned in last week, or maybe someone invited you and you've decided to join us uh, today to come and really study God's Word. I mean, we would preach on a Sunday, and um, even though preaching has a teaching element to it, um, on this day, what we are trying to do is really to, to teach, to go a little bit more deeper into, into study. And so we're so happy if you are just joining us for the first time. And maybe I should even try and look and see who is already here. Okay, there's a, a caller, Oshunui. I wonder who that is, because he seems to have the same surname as I have. Um, probably is my father. Uh, but uh, I can see Maraji's world. Um, then there's an Arbinfinity, some with some kind of fancy name. And so please, um, if you're just joining, we would love to uh, know your name. Just say hi, this person here, Demola Bad Badmos is here. And maybe just say where you're from, what part of, of the world, as we, we wait for other people to join us. Um, Adebola Olojolu is here as well. And so it's good to see that our numbers are rising. Um, so as I said, welcome, welcome again. I, I think we want to give like two, three minutes for more people to jump to jump in on the um, uh, on, on this on this and so I can see more. Okay, wow. Um, Soto Ajayi from Switzerland. Hi, hi. Nice. Thanks for joining us. Um, Sheona Kimbola. Hi. Hello. Although Sheona, you didn't tell us where you are joining from. It would be nice to know. Uh, Rotimi, Rotimi Akintunde. I think you are joining us from from Lagos. Is it Demo? I can't quite remember. Ichu. Um, Hira, Hira, welcome from Lekki, Victoria. They're doing Olusu Komiya Jobi. Ah, that's a special person, a very special aunt of mine. Um, M. Ajose, hi, hello. Okay, food.mommy, that is a nice name. Foodie, actually, foodie.mommy. All right, let's hope we get into some spiritual food today. And Shea Akimbola from Lagos. All right. Emma Joseph from London, UK. Uh, that is great. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. I think we probably should start. We should get into, into the study. And I have to say, really, today is going to be packed. I hope I can do it within the right amount of time. If I exceed the time, I hope you permit me. We may steal a little bit of it from the Q&A. But uh, that's because there's just quite a lot of things to do. I should say, um, just set the context for what we are doing, uh, just a little bit of background, but at the same time, um, do a small recap of what we did last week. But as I said, as we all know, we are in interesting times. Um, a lot of what is going on is unprecedented, and so we're trying to understand how do you read it. And everybody is trying to use a lens to read some of the things that are going on. And um, the Christian uh, fold, we are not different. And to be more specific, sometimes we, we do use the Bible to read what is going on, the specific events. Uh, does the Bible actually speak to this? And so there's a lot that has been going on, which is part of what has inspired us to do this series. What does the Bible say about what is going on now? And a lot of people have made allusions, maybe not so much expositions, but a lot of allusions to uh, things that we find in the book of Revelation. And I should say this, because the times are interesting, I'm quite 
quite frankly confusing, it's all the more the reason why we need discernment. But discernment really is only going to come as a result of a right perception of what we see, that is truth. Truth enables us to have discernment. In other words, error would be the enemy of discernment. Because what error would do is error would either give you a, a, a futile confidence. You have confidence, but it's futile because it's not based on truth. Or it gives you um, mm -hmm. uh, misleading, misleading uh, fear or misdirected fear. So error would bring about um, futile, uh, say futile uh, confidence, whereas um, it, or, uh, it will bring about futile confidence or, on the other hand, misdirected fear. Whereas truth is meant to bring a realistic confidence, realistic confidence. And that's what I would say the book of Revelation is presenting to us um, if we look at it in the right way. That is, it is going to give us faith because faith, the Latin for faith is fide, and we have fide in confidence, confidence, right? It's going to give you faith that is based on reality, a true perception of reality, faith based on truth. That's what Revelation gives to us. And so what we are hoping with this series, um, this three-part series, is that we would leave strengthened in our faith, but a faith that is based on a true picture of what God has said. And so, as I said, we're going to look into the Bible. Get your Bibles. If some of you are a writer, you like to write with pens or you want to type, get all of those things. Invite people. It's not too late to tell them that the broadcast has started. I would still ask again, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are trying to get to 1,000. And also on the other places, if you are a mixer, please follow us uh, as well. But with YouTube, we're trying to get to 1,000 subscribers because that enables us to do certain things. Um, I have asked them to try to present, uh, to put some of the scriptures on slides here. Now, it's a little bit more difficult when you're doing it with a live shooting and live streaming. So, and because there are a lot of scriptures, there may be an issue with legibility or sizing. And if that's the case, particularly here on YouTube or Facebook, if that's the case, please, please forgive us for that. So, still get your Bibles. All right. Now, last week, we said that the entire Bible is ultimately about God's revelation and disclosure in Jesus. God's redemptive um, plan is unfolded in the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, that points us to Jesus' good news, the gospel. And so we said if there are six, six books of the Bible, they ultimately should be pointing to that. They have different ways and styles that, in which they are written. That's what we call genres. But ultimately, they have the same message that they are pointing to, some more explicitly than the others. But they are all pointing to Jesus and his gospel and the effect of that gospel. All right, so the book of Revelation is no different. And what we were able to show last week was how you could see the centrality of the person of Jesus that, that is the lamb in the book of Revelation or the Lord uh, or, or, or other reference uh, to him. Um, but we also said that the book of Revelation is somewhat unique because it is written combining three different styles. That is, it's an epistle, it's a prophecy, and it's also written in apocalyptic literature. And so it's bringing those three things together, those three styles together, but it's still trying to give you the same 
message. Now, I said in this three-part series, what we're going to do is that we're going to start with a, 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 an aircraft view, a 30,000 30 to 35,000 view of, of of things, then we'll move to the helicopter and then we'll move to the drone, uh, to the drone, to the drone view. So today we're moving to the helicopter's view. In other words, from at the plane level, at the 30,000 level, we had, we were trying to see the consistency of the message of revelation within the entire canon of scripture. Trying to see the consistency of the message of revelation within the entire canon of scripture. Now, today at the helicopter's view, we want to see the consistency of the message of revelation within the book itself. One was within the canon, but the next one today, we want to see within the book itself. I should emphasize, don't be scared of this book. Don't feel like you have to run away from this book. In fact, in this time of uncertainty, um, I would say, and I, using this for a study, it has also been devotional. I would actually say spend more time in the book of Revelation, right? It actually is going to be helpful for your devotions. In our church, in our gospel communities, we are doing the book of Daniel, and there are many similarities. And last time we did Daniel chapter 7, and you could see similarities, but it was giving people comfort if we interpret it rightly. So we want to see the consistency of the message of Revelation. We've seen it through uh, the entire scripture, but now we want to see it within the book itself. What is that message? What is the message of Revelation trying, what is the message that is trying to convey? What is God trying to convey ultimately to us, to the people that was written to at the time, but to us as well? Well, God is trying to convey this. This is the message of Revelation. Like I summarize it this way. It is the unfolding, is the unfolding of God's sovereign plan for the eternal victory of his church in the victory of the Lamb despite, the cons uh, despite Satan's concerted opposition against her. I'll say it again. It is the unfolding of God's sovereign plan of eternal victory for his church in the victory of the Lamb, despite Satan's concerted opposition of evil against her. However you want to interpret all other things within that, if you are not getting that message, can I say that you are getting something else? And that's not what is intended. I'll give you one more time. What is the message of Revelation? And we'll still get back to it. It is the unfolding of God's sovereign God's sovereign plan of eternal victory for his church in the victory of the Lamb, despite the concerted opposition, uh, Satan's concerted opposition of evil against her. Now, today, what we are going to do is to examine different approaches to the Book of Revelation, and then I will present um, another view that I think will be better. All right, and I think um, I would say those other views I would say are not really correct because of their, not just their lack of comprehensiveness in how they treat the book, but also I would say um, that they tend not to produce the right fruit in the hearers of those or the, the listeners or the hearers or the readers of those who, who take that approach. So without further ado, let us begin. Let's begin um, our uh, descent. Now, I should start with, let me start with um, a little bit of political history in Nigeria. Um, if you look at the two parties, the two major parties that we have today, uh, 
they didn't just spring up. That is the PDP and the APC. They are actually inheritors of a line, a lineage of, of um, political, if you like, political affiliation, history, partisan political affiliation. So let me take a little bit further, as, you know, as far back as maybe the 40s uh, to the early 50s. Uh, the two main parties at the time were the NCC, NCNC, the NCNC. Uh, first, that was founded by Herbert Macaulay, uh, Nandi Azikwe was the first secretary, uh, but it was the party through which Azikwe became uh, president. Um, I think it was a party also, most likely, I think that Afar Balewa was part. Now, so you had the NCNC. Um, it was really a mixture of those in the east and the north. And then you had um, the AG. Action Group um, of Afemi Aulo and a lot of guys in the southwest. And so that was really what ran between the, the you, as I said, the early, uh, late 40s, early 50s, 60s, until we had uh, the military, uh, the first military coup d'etat. After that, the next um, democratic uh, republic that we had, uh, we had the elections of um, 79. By this time, you had two new parties, but those two parties really were coming from the same line. What was that line? Uh, what were those parties? The MPN and the UPN. I think um, Obafemi Aula was presidential candidate for the UPN and the MPN had Shehu Shagari. Now, I should say something about these parties, both from the AGNCNC and now to the NPN, UPN, even though things started to dilute. People belong to parties based on certain ways of viewing the world politically, and that's what you call ideologies, right? So the NCNC was really based more on a, a free market, um, centered more around the individual enterprise and things like that, whereas the other guys were based on a more progressive approach, that is the government itself stimulating um, um, uh, the different kinds of uh, economic growth and a lot of social, social welfare uh, programs and things like that. And so that that sort of ideological thinking continued to 79, and then we had another coup d'etat in 83. Fast forward to the next elections in 93, and then the line that took the NCNC to the, uh, the MPN now was now in the NRC, and the presidential candidate was uh, Bashir Tofa, and then you had the AG line, to the UPN line, to the SDP line, Abiola, Moshida Abiola, MKO Abiola. And so if you follow that line also all the way to today, you will get to PDP, which basically has come from the NCNC, the MPN, the, U, U, uh, the, MPN, the NRC, and then uh, PDP, whereas the other, APC, comes from the other. But here is a crucial difference that has been made. Remember I said, that what used to happen was you would be, you had a certain ideology and that determined the party that you went into. Now within that party, you would have inter-party debates. That is, at first there's the group way of thinking based on ideology. And so you are there, you are in that party. But then within that ideological um, uh, belief, then there were different views on certain things in terms of the details. Um, uh, uh, that would cause debate within the party. However, because of this fixed ideology, you could never imagine that somebody in the MPN was going to cross over to the UPN. Because they just, 
or someone in NCNC was going to cross over to AG, it just wasn't going to happen. Ideologically, they were different. How many of you know this? In the last couple of years, you can be, some people have gone between the PDP and the APC back and forth maybe three or four times. Why? Because something changed. Because party affiliation was no longer based on ideology. It now became based on identity. It became based on being, this person is my friend, or this person has offended me, so I will join the others. Have you noticed what has changed? The framework, the framework itself has changed. Before, the framework, as the framework remained, you would debate inside uh, the party. But now, because it's no longer based on ideology, those, even though the parties were built on ideological frameworks, people are able to go back and forth within them. And that's caused a lot of instability. Now, I go through all of that history to bring you to something here. When it comes to the approach of the book of Revelation, there are different parties based on ideological ways of thinking about it. There are different parties. Within those parties, if you like, within those frameworks, within those structures, there would now be some debate as to, uh, no, we should, on the details. No, I don't think this one was that. I don't think that was that. I don't think that was that. All right, that's fine. No problem with that. But what I want to do at a helicopter view is not to get so much into detail. What I want to challenge is the party, the framework, the structure. What I want to present is the party, the framework, the structure. But I first want to look at other views, right? Three of them, but the first two I will not spend much time on. Then the third one I will spend some time on and try to show some of the problems with those views and then try to then present another one. We are basically trying to say, I'm trying to say, let's look at other parties. There's another party for you to join. All right? So we're not going to do so much detail inter-party debate. What I'm trying to say is, I'm not trying to settle scores within. I'm trying to say, how about look at another party? Are we together? All right, good. So let's take uh, the first two views. One is called the preterist view. The other is called the histor historicist view. Preterist or historicist. Now, not too many people subscribe to these. And there's a reason why. With the preterist view, basically, it says that the book of Revelation has ultimately, almost virtually everything the book of Revelation has been fulfilled around, on or before AD 70. That is 70 years after Christ, on or before that. Um, and there are a number of reasons and things that they connect to, but I, won't, I, I don't want to, I flirted with this view some years ago, but it doesn't hold water. I mean, first of all, it's built on the fact that the book had to be written in, um, in, in around 68 AD, whereas most people agree that the book was written around 95 AD, and that then makes everything crumble. And besides, what relevance does the book have to us? if everything has been fulfilled in AD 70. Now, there are some other inter-party debates. Some people say, no, it's not about that. It's um, the fifth century. Uh, OK, even if it's the fifth century, we are in the 21st century. It doesn't make any. So that's the preterist view. All right, there are other reasons I can give for why it doesn't hold, but I'm not going to spend too much time. The historicist view says, remember last time we talked about the seven, the seven seals, the seven uh, trumpets, the seven bowls. We'll say a little bit more later. But it's saying that those seven bowls, the seven seals come first, then the seven trumpets, then the seven um, uh, bowls. It basically says that these represent successive ages in the church. That is, they've already been fulfilled, and you can match where these things occurred. 
that the church at this age, the church at the, uh, if you like, the medieval age, the church at this age, and, the, and so they start matching certain events in those things. So for instance, they identify with the corruption of the papacy, the reformation, Napoleon Bonaparte, all of those things. The problem with this view is that people eventually, when, when you're not getting to the end on time, people start changing what they match the event to. Right, like, eh, we thought it was that was Napoleon Bonaparte. No, 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 it's not. It's not. Or we thought that was the Reformation. Mm, no, no, no. You see, you start changing, and it usually happens that the person who is interpreting and matching always thinks that Christ is coming in their own in their own time. But a crucial big problem with it is also is most people that have held to that view. The events that they point to are really events that happen um, that happen in the Western Church. Right, so we here in Africa, it has nothing to do with us, right? The, the big things in the church were happening in the West, but in Africa, who really, nothing is really happening, and, and that's just a problem. It's not comprehensive enough. So those are the first two views. As I say, you may find diversity within them, but I don't think most people don't hold to those views, and I don't think they are strong enough views. All right. Now, that brings me to. I would say the most dominant view, and if you permit me to take some water, the most dominant view right now, I think, for most people, even when you don't have a comprehensive approach towards this thing, most likely when you think about the, the way what they call eschatology, the study of the end times, you would, you would be talking about specific things within this view. Let us call it the, the futurist view. So if, let's say, you, if you've ever heard somebody say something like, um, I am pre-trib, or I am mid-trib, or I am post-trib, that is the inter-party debate. They're already all part of a particular framework, but that's an inter-party debate. So what does this view say? Um, when you look at the book of Revelation, it basically says this. We know what chapter 1 is all about. It's the introduction, the prologue. We know what chapters 2 to 3 are all about. It's the seven letters to the seven churches. All right. So if you like, one is past, one is present. Then when you get to chapter 21 to 22, we also know what that is about. That is the eternal. So we have the past, present, but um, we don't have the and we have the eternal, but what about the future? Well, the future is the stuff of chapters 4 to chapter 20. And there's a crucial thing that happens there. And so let me start with that. So there are about nine things that help with this view, that it, it, it structures the whole of that 4 to 20 in uh, nine events. So the first one is, the first one is, the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church. Now, the rapture of the church itself does not appear in the book of Revelation. So what is assumed is that the rapture has happened just before chapter 4, verse 1, just before the beginning of 4, verse 1, the rapture has happened. So you have the rapture of the church. Then you have the seven-year tribulation, all right? It's seven-year tribulation. So when you hear trib, trib, trib is pointing to tribulation. Seven-year tribulation, 
you have the reign of the Antichrist, and this is where the mark of the beast thing happens, uh, well, between, between both actually. Sorry, seven, it's within seven-year tribulation that you're trying to get the mark of the beast. So rapture of the church, seven-year tribulation, the, the reign of the Antichrist, the gathering of forces against Jerusalem, the gathering of forces against Jerusalem, the return of Christ to defeat uh, the, the, these unbelieving forces, these nations. Then, that's five, the 1,000-year the reign of Christ. Then after that, you have Satan, uh, Satan's gathering of unbelieving forces, right? Satan's gathering of unbelieving forces. Then you have the final destruction of the devil and all these other people. And then um, and that also brings about the final judgment as well. And then you have the eternal heavenly reign of Christ. Rapture of the church, the um, seven-year tribulation, the reign of the Antichrist, the forces against Jerusalem, the return of Christ to defeat those forces, the 1,000-year uh, reign, the gathering of Satan's forces, um, and then the defeat of Satan and the final judgment. And then you have the heavenly reign, the, one, uh, the heavenly reign of Christ. Okay, so what are some of the problems? And most people will, 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 be, will be holding to this view, and even some of the questions I received last week. Now, I said they're inter-party inter debates, right? Inter-framework debate. Some people say, no, the rapture of the church, maybe pre-trip, the rapture of the church, yes, it's going to happen before the seven years. Some people say, no, it's going to happen in the middle, in three and a half years into it. That's when the church is taken away. Some people say, no, post-trip, the rapture of the church happens after the seven years, before the reign of the Antichrist. So there, but it still accepts the, this, the same framework. What are some of the problems with this view? Because I don't think that's the right view. Okay, so let me go into some of the problems. So our first scriptures, we're going to look at, I, I would say first problem is the thing that triggers all of this, triggers all of this, is the rapture. What if there isn't a rapture as understood? What if there is no rapture as understood? Now, let me say this. By the rapture, what people mean is that at some point in history, before all of this unfolding or in the middle of it or whatever, Jesus Christ is going to come back and snatch the church away. He's going to come back and take his people away. That is, all the, 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 the people of church will come away. I don't know if you ever saw, I don't know if this starts revealing my age, but in the late 90s there was a guy called Dr. Alban who was a Nigerian DJ uh, based in Sweden, and he had this uh, song, Hallelujah Day. Right, and uh, you see people going going up. The rapture had happened, you know. So, what if there is no rapture? Now, most people, most people that hold to the view of the rapture, remember, I said it's nowhere found in the Book of Revelation. It's not. It's assumed. So, you have to have gotten the interpretation from outside the Book of Revelation, and then bring that framework into the Book of Revelation, and then everything fits in. But what if there's no rapture? Now, the rapture is the taking, snatching away of the church into heaven before or after, before within the seven-year tribulation. And then other things. God then starts to deal with the Jews. Like he returns, uh, the church has been called the great parenthesis. God was dealing with the Jews. Then he turned to the church, which included Gentiles. He dealt with the church. Now, at his, when he's finished with the church, he will take the church away and then continue with the Jews. So the church was a bracket, a parenthesis. 
But what if there is no rapture? Then all of a sudden, this whole framework doesn't make any sense. Now, the rapture mainly is justified from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse, and I'm going to read verses 15 to 17. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, don't forget that, we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, so those who are alive at the time when Jesus returns will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The church in Thessalonica was having a problem that they were grieving about. They were, many of them expected that Christ was going to return in their time, and the Bible never re revealed the day, so they could expect that kind of thing would happen. And so they were now wondering what's going to happen for those who had died before Christ had returned. And Paul was trying to encourage them here. He then says, so he says that we will not precede them. Precede them in what? For the Lord himself shall come down from heaven, Jesus returning, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. So we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, the trumpet call of God, don't forget that, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who are fallen asleep, he says they will rise. They will rise. They will resurrect maybe. And 17, after that, we who are still alive at the coming of the Lord and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord forever. You, do you see it? Those who are asleep will first rise and then they will go caught up to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. And then those who are alive would also levitate and they will be with the Lord in the air forever. And so this is, this is probably the most central text of the rapture. You can, there's also Matthew 24, two shall be together on the field, one shall be taken away. But there are not many that you would hold as central texts. Now, I want you to see something. Don't forget one. Paul is the writer. Sometimes in, when you're doing interpretation of scripture, you want to see whether the same writer has certain things that he has said and he said to another letter, he may say it slightly differently, but you know he's having the same reference. So there are many comparisons, for instance, with Paul, of Colossians and Ephesians, when you compare the two of them. Right? Some modification, but again, you have the same reference. And so sometimes the other one can shed light on something the first has said. So look at this. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 to 53, the topic, you don't have to take my word for it, just study. The topic of the whole 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection. Move from Christ's resurrection to the resurrection of believers. Now, so at this point, it's getting towards the end. Paul then says something in verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Do you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, it says, we who are still alive. So those who are still alive is the one, are the ones that Paul is talking about not sleeping. So he then says, we will not all sleep, but we will be changed. So those who, are not, who will not die will be changed. When will they be changed? And what change are we talking about? He says, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So he must be talking about the same thing he was talking about with the Thessalonians, because there he also talked about the trumpet call of God. If you still doubt, he said, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. On the other one, he said, the dead in Christ will rise first. 
if 1 Thessalonians, we weren't too clear about it being resurrection, here when he says the dead will be raised, remember the whole topic is about resurrection. So we now know that in 1 Thessalonians, he's talking about resurrection when he talks about the dead being raised. But here he goes into further details. They will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So what Paul is saying, those guys went through death to get into their eternal glory, their eternal bodies. So they had to be raised. They went, they were alive, went through death in the way Jesus Christ came and came out in their resurrect, resurrected estate. But those who are alive will not go through death. They will just go through a change. That's what he's saying. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When you look at that, Paul did not talk about a vanishing away, a snatching away here. What he was talking about here was, if you like, in 1 Thessalonians 4, was being caught up with the Lord, like the Lord coming as a dignitary. The governor is arriving today, or a president goes into another, a foreign country. What happens is dignitaries go and meet him to welcome him. And he's saying the risen, resurrected Lord, when he returns, we, his children, would also go and meet him. But we will not meet him in the same way that we are. We will meet him in the same estate that he's in because he's coming to rise us up from the dead. It's not talking about the snatching away. It's talking about our being united with Christ in the resurrection. In the resurrection like him. He's going to come, they say he's coming uh, like uh, uh, on the clouds of heaven and there, there's a lot of symbolism there tied to Daniel chapter 7 with the Son of Man coming uh, uh, coming, and you see that repeated in the book of Revelation. But I'm saying there is no rapture that is taught here, it's snatching away. But there's more I can see that is problematic, there's more I want to say that is problematic with this view. If this whole framework works, remember, one to three, present, past, what have uh, in Revelation. But four, from four onwards up until 20, is about, it's not for the church, it's not for Jews, it's not whatever. First of all, the first audience of this book will not have, it will have had no relevance to them. The seven, the seven churches, no relevance. Whereas Paul continues to appeal for patient endurance. He first appealed to them, the seven churches, but it goes on throughout the whole book. In other words, that is, there was meant to be relevance of the entire things in the book to the first audience, not just chapters two and three. And that would be right, that would, that would be the same kind of way all the epistles have been written. The epistles are not written to certain to people when you give them eight chapters and then say the first two chapters are for you. Also, um, you want to be careful how you start. Some, uh, before the rapture, some people looked at the gathering of Israel in 1948 to their land as catalytic, as something that changed everything. You want to be careful with that. And the way I would say that is because the Israel that you see in, um, uh, today, that Israel that you see there, is not covenant Israel. And so trying to understand the restoration of Israel to their land again I think that oversimplifies it. That is not a covenant nation because there is no covenant people outside of the church of God. Israel were under a covenant at the time, but with the destruction of the temple, with the changing of the priesthood, all of those things, the fulfillment of that old covenant was in the new 
covenant. You are not going to replace. It's like me having uh, taken a picture of my wife um, um, uh, uh, somewhere with me, and then eventually my wife joins me, and then I'm still looking at that picture when she's around. No, the fulfillment of the picture was my wife coming herself. Also, within this framework, you have to deal with multiple second returns of Christ, separated over a long time. So, like with this, this um, um, uh, coming of 1 Thessalonians 4, supposedly to rapture the church, it's one coming, but it's coming for believers. So you have the second coming of Christ for believers first. Then after that, there will be this seven-year tribulation. Then after that, there will be the reign of the Antichrist. Then after that, Christ will then come for his 1,000-year reign. Then after that, you will then have the final judgment. I mean, that, whereas, so in other words, the believers are somewhat judged before that final judgment when Christ comes, but then the final judgment is really just for unbelievers. And so you have a resurrection of believers first, and then later after this whole span of time, you then have resurrection of non-Christians. Well, that's a problem with other parts of Scripture. So for instance, other parts of Scripture see the judgment of believers and unbelievers around the same time. Just look at John chapter 5, for instance. John chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 28 and verse 29, in John chapter 5, very simple, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come out. That sounds like a resurrection. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. It is hard to see that space of tribulation, of Antichrist reign, and then 1,000 years in between that, and then have to make, you know, there's the coming for the 1,000 years then, there's the final throne judgment. Or take uh, Matthew 25, maybe I don't have to read there. Matthew 25, Jesus, there is a final judgment there, the judgment of the sheep and the, sheep and the goats. He puts the sheep on one side, the goat on one side. It's not, it's not, there's no, this time lag that we see. You can also look at um, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, 26. Maybe I'll just open to that one and leave there. You can check out the two Thessalonians on your own. But 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 26, this is what he says. Again, remember he's talking about the resurrection. But he says, but each in turn, this is the sequence of the, the resurrection, each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, that is the first fruits crop, right? Uh, Christ is the first. The, that's why the Bible calls him the, the, the firstborn from the dead, right? He's the f first fruits. Christ, Jesus Christ, the first fruit of the resurrection. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then, you now say, eh, yes, now though, when he comes, the first time he comes, to rapture the church, those who belong to him. He says, then the end will come. Then the end, at that same time, the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after, you see, well, maybe the then, there's still that space. But he says, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until... He must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. In other words, he comes back when he, to defeat all his, to put all his enemies under his feet. 
that's when it comes to, 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 uh, to resurrect his people, but also to put all his enemies under his feet. And you see that in Revelation chapter 20 at the final judgment, when death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Because he then says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But then also this framework, you have everyone trying to fit um, the changing events, very similar to the historicist view, the changing events um, into the changing events and the, we try to match oh, this particular one in Revelation chapter 8. This is what he meant. This communist Russia, this what have you. And you have this sequence. It sees Revelation as from 4 to 20 is a sequence. This one happens this time. And next thing, 5 comes after, then 6 comes after, then 7 comes after, 8, 9 comes after, 10, 11. So the events happen sequentially in the way the chapters are, are divided. Now, I'll make an argument that I don't think that's how the book of Revelation is structured. But what is the fallout of this? Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that everyone who holds to some kind of this framework always falls into this trap. But I would say the, the effect, the trap that I want to talk about, happens a lot, especially when it comes to this issue of there's a fascination of interpretations and matching that comes with this kind of view. Once you have to start fitting things within that nine event structure. So the first thing I can talk about is, we can talk about the events. Events. All of a sudden, World War I, ah, World War I must have been pointing to this particular war, that because if you see the way those hailstones, uh, the, the rocks came, maybe those are the hailstones of Revelation chapter 6, until World War II comes. And then you see, oh, if that was World War I and the end doesn't come, then we have a problem. Right? Israel's 1948 thing, as I said, uh, 1968 Yom Kippur War. Before you know it, there are so many people that did a lot of date setting. And I'll talk about the entire movements and all of that. But Yom Kippur, the Gulf, even the Gulf Wars, the Gulf Wars because it was really linked to Saddam Hussein. So you, you, there's a fascination of matching events, but there's also a fascination of matching who the Antichrist is. Adolf Hitler. No, before Adolf Hitler, it was Mussolini. No, it's not Mussolini. It's Adolf Hitler. Must be a fascist. We've talked about Saddam Hussein. We've talked about the, maybe sometimes it's, it, those, are, those are political leaders. How about uh, economic leaders? Very wealthy people, the Rothschilds, are constantly suspected to you know, have some shady things in trying to rule the world. The, the, there was a famous family called the Rothschilds, probably still the richest family in the world. We've identified uh, the, uh, Barack Obama, was many times seen as that. Bill Gates now, today, seeing that he's the one that's going to eventually give us a vaccine, right? The, the popes, different popes, as I said in my lifetime, Pope John Paul II, um, um, pope Ratzinger, um, that's a Benedict, and even this pope, all have been suspected to be the Antichrist because you are looking for who is going to sign a peace treaty between Israel and Palestine and, and many of those things. You start looking into the moons, blood moons, and which full moon has come in because the sun will be darkened and the moon shall not give their light. And so we start trying to match some of these things. Also, there's an issue of fascination with ideologies and institutions. Communism was the great enemy, but then, that was an ideology, but then you had the UN, 
was a problem. The European Common Market, which eventually becomes the European Union, is a problem. Some started to identify it as uh, the, the seven-headed monster with ten horns until there were more than ten, seven, then more than ten, and now there are 20-something. Now some people are saying, oh, as Britain has come out, it eventually come down to ten. Oh, my gosh. Some people say that China, because there's, a, there's an army of 200 million people sort of represented in, in the book of Revelation, so people are saying China is building an army of 200 million people because they're the only ones that can have that kind of army. And then, of course, if you have fascination with interpretation that matches, uh, matches of events, the Antichrist, ideologies and institutions, there's also a fascination of technological advancement and the mark of the beast. Every time there's some kind of technological advancement, you're trying to, the big ones, we try to relate it to the mark of the beast. So I've spoken a lot about chips, microchips, used as form of identification. That has been going on since the 80s, maybe even 70s, 90s. Microchips that have been inserted inside us so that we can be identified with the mark of the beast and what have you. I've spoken about artificial, last time artificial intelligence um, um, and all of that. But then there are other connections to you know, maybe secular education as a way that people are trying to receive the mark of the beast. Um, um, and now it's connected to 5G. Now there are many, all of a sudden with the 5G and coronavirus stuff, there are now many inter-family debates within that. Those who say 5G is not the one causing, if 5G is the one causing the coronavirus, those who say no, no, no. With fire, coronavirus is a distraction so that 5G can be done and all of those things. My point is this within this framework, within, I would say, convoluted framework like this, within this very, if you like, complicated framework, you are bound to have all of these things. It has sprung up so many end-time movements, which, whether churches that are, that feel, they, they, they're so fascinated with eschatology, it starts to create special revelation teachers special revelation uh, move, um, churches, special revelation movements, who in some ways start to divide the church because they say, well, all those other churches out there, they're baby churches, primary school churches. Because all the thing about gospel of grace, you know, all of those things are primary stuff. Secondary stuff can be, you know, maybe, you know, they say, oh, gospel of grace is, um, is uh, the, the milk of the word, the milk of the word. Now, if you want to get into the meat of the word, you start talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, or maybe you have certain doctrines of grace, different kinds of things. Those are the meat of the word. But then some people say there's something called the bones. You crack the bones. And the bones is when you start getting to the book of Revelation and the second part of Daniel. And so you start creating these clusters, you know, you, where we, are, we, are, we have something. And so this kind of framework enables you to, to, to have so much to study about and so much to figure out. And people start having revelations from God themselves on how to interpret these things. And, and so that leads to, I would say, an over-fascination of matching all of these things, which then the fruit of it then becomes that we keep our eyes not on Christ, not on the world. We keep our eyes on the world to see the unveiling of the things that have been said. We start to stoke up fear, as so many people are doing with their conspiracy theories, um, saying that YouTube uh, can give rise to anybody to set up their own channel like we have done. But it stokes up fear. It brings about complex 
things, you know, uses complexities to, well, I would say it brings about superior complexities, as I've already mentioned. Like, we, our own church, we are the ones that really understand this thing. And then it brings about division with the church. With that superior complex way of thinking, there's division in the church. And most crucially, rather than focus on Jesus and the gospel and the implications of the gospel, this thing then makes us focus so much on eschatology. And I would then say a wrong view of eschatology. So this is why I would say we must look elsewhere. We must not have an inter-party debate within this framework. I would say that the book of Revelation itself points us to something else. It points us to another party. Can I ask you, I want to present a different party, and it's not Femme, please, oh, don't come at this. It's not Femme's view. I too have had to study others um, who have, have come up with, with this kind of view. So it's not Femme's view, but I want you to look at it. Remember again, I said, it has to fit in with the entire story of the Bible. Is the message of Revelation consistent with that story of the Bible? And then we'll see whether the message of Revelation is consistent within itself. Wow. Okay, so now let's get into it. Remember what I said, what is the message of Revelation? The unfolding of God's sovereign plan of eternal victory for his church in the victory of the Lamb, in the victory of Christ the Lamb, uh, despite Satan's concerted opposition of evil against her. Mm. Now for us to be able to examine this and look at this, let's go back to um, the divisions. I want to uh, present something that is important, but we should remember the divisions of the book of Revelation. I give about 10 of them. Let's remove the, 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 the prologue and the epilogue. The prologue is in uh, chapter 1, 1 to 20. The epilogue is chapter 22, 6 to 21. Now, you then have chapters 2 to 3, the seven letters. Chapters 2 to 3, the seven letters, seven churches. Chapter 4 to 5, we call the heavenly throne. This is really important. Chapters 4 to 5, really important, the heavenly throne. Now, the next six are very similar to themselves. All right? The next six are very similar to themselves. 6, 1 to 8, 5, the seven seals. 8, 6 to 11, 19, seven trumpets. 12, 1 to 15, 4, the seven signs. 15, 5 to 16, 21, the seven bowls, 15.5 to 16.21, to, 15, to the seven bowls, 17.1 to 19.21, the judgment of Babylon, the beast, and the false prophet. Judgment of Babylon, the beast, and the false prophet. Then the entire chapter 20, judgment of Satan and others. And then finally, 21.1 to 22.5, new creation. New creation. All right. Now, what you find within? Oh, let me let's let's let let me um, set something for this view before going ahead. If I was driving, if um, I was driving a car and my wife was on the other side and she noticed a car coming that I wasn't seeing, this is something the kind of way she would what she would do. She would say something like this: "It's coming! It's coming! It's coming!" She said the same thing three times, but she said them in different ways. If you notice, she said the same thing, same message, 
but it was intensified in the tomb. Now, this view holds to the fact that the book of Revelation, let's call this the redemptive historical view, redemptive historical view, because the unfolding of God's plan, sovereign plan of eternal victory for his church. So this view depends on seeing the book of Revelation as successive vision, as, as seen as the vi visions that are being seen as recapitulated. They are recapitulated. It's not fully sequential. This, it sees certain things from one angle, from one place. After it's finished with that, that vision, it gives you that same, um, that same reality through another vision. It's recapitulated. And then eventually, as you're getting towards the, as, as you keep moving, it keeps being intensified. Just like my wife said, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. So as we move through the book, you will see the same things being said again and again and again. But we are looking at it from different angles, from different, like if I had five cameras here now, you'll be seeing me from my side, from this other side, maybe from the back, from these angles, right? That's what is being done. But it is intensifying. It is intensifying. Because what it's trying to show us is that there is a cosmic war between good and evil in which good wins. Why? Because God is the one behind the good. God wins, Christ conquers, and the church is victorious. So these visions will parallel each other. They, they are parallels of the events that characterize the church of every age, the church of every age from Pentecost until when Christ returns. He is not returning multiple times. From when Christ ascended to when Christ is going to return. Christ, God, this, God came as a human being, first descent, he returned, and he's going to come back again. Now, between the time when, after he died and resurrected and then ascended, and the time when he's going to come, what characterizes the church of every age? That is what he keeps telling us. With one small addition, it eventually gets us to the end of the church. So it tells us what characterizes the church of every age. These different visions, those six, I said, in those six divisions I told you, the, the seal, seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, the seven bowls, the judgment of Babylon, the beast and the false prophets, and the judgment of Satan. Um, uh, six to six one to eight five, eight six to eleven nine, twelve one to fifteen four, fifteen five to sixteen twenty one, seventeen one to nineteen twenty one, and chapter twenty. All of those six are saying the same thing. It is not a sequence of events. This is absolutely crucial in trying to understand what Revelation is about. Now, I want us to prove that because that's how we're going to go through the book. But let's start. Let's run through. The book and I'll be able to see it. But you would see, I'll prove that by showing you how at the end of the day, after as these things are being recapitulated in the book of Revelation, right, you will see that no matter how different the details are, they always end in the final judgment, a final judgment, and final rewards. Final judgment, final rewards. Okay? So let's see. I'll, there's the epilogue, there's the prologue. Jesus Christ introduces himself as he's the one that is going to be the, um, the one that is revealing himself to John. But then he has a message for seven churches, right? That message for the seven churches is not limited to two to three. It is the entire book. 
And that's why, again, this thing can be applied to churches at every age. He's not just telling them specific things. Yes, the church in Philadelphia, the church in Thyatira, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamon, the church in um, Ephesus. He's telling them specific things. Church in Laodicea is telling them specific things. But then when he gets to four to the end, he's going to tell them things that applies to their, all their, their, their condition. They can see it in the diverse ways, but they are part of this. And not just to them, to us. So the, the, the letter was written to the seven churches, but was written for us. Written to them, but written for us. It can be applied to every age. So, he says specific things to those churches. And then, we want to now see this vision that is going to show us that characterizes the whole church of every age, but then gets us towards the end of final judgment and final reward. But four to five are important. Why? Because four brings us, four to five shows us how this thing is being orchestrated, who is behind it. You will notice that you will not see Satan here because the battle between good and evil is not a battle of equal and opposite. It is not a battle of minus one and plus one. And then when minus one and plus one come together, it's zero. It's not that. There is a creator, and whatever ferocious beast and evil um, uh, 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 entities you see in the book of Revelation, they are still under the control of what is coming from the heavenly throne room. And in the heavenly throne room, first, you have one in chapter 4, we're introduced to the one who sits on the throne, God, the Father. But then, as people are worshipping him, for he has created all things, and by his good pleasure they are all created. In chapter 4, notice what then happens in chapter 5. Now, he has other beings, 24 four elders around them, but they are really four creatures. They are just pictures of what you call seraphim, higher order of angels. And yet they are unable to approach the throne, right? No matter how, uh, how, how, how magnificent they are. And this takes you back to Isaiah 6. Verse Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord and Seraphim were around him. And then, next thing, in chapter 5, we are told that there is a seal, there is a scroll that is bound by seven seals. But no one in heaven or earth is able to op open them until we see a lamb that appears as though it's been slain. But it's also a lion of the tribe of Judah. It's not that it is a lamb and a lion and you can see this kind of weird view. No, no, no. It's basically telling you something that you know. Jesus, the lamb who was slain, and eventually tells us we know that Jesus is the person, you read the book of Revelation, that is that person. But also, he is, of the, he is also the king, the Messiah of the tribe of Judah. Taking you back to prophecies in Numbers chapter 20, is it 21 or 24? you know, about the star of David and, and things like that. We know that. Is, so it's this lamb, and he is the one that is open, able to open the seal. But notice that this lamb is by the throne of God, at the right hand of God, because he himself is the creator of the world. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And nothing was, the word was made that was not made by him. But that word became flesh. He became a human being. And we know what happened when he became a human being. He was, of the order, he was on the lineage of David, but he died, slain as a lamb. So he is the one now that opens, that is able to open the seal. And they, all the heavenly hosts, start to worship him, proving again that he is God. They worship him just like they worship the one on 
the throne. So this, first of all, should tell you something. No matter what you are going to see throughout the book of Revelation, no matter how much you think that applies to you, God is in control. The sovereign God who created the entire universe, the sovereign God who redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb is the one who is in sovereign control. That's why you say it's the unfolding of the sovereign plan of God. It's not whether or not this will come to pass. No, it will come to pass because God is in control of it. And that must be, you, it, it covers the entire unfolding of what we then see. Okay? Now, we then move into the seals start being opened. Right, they start being opened very, very quickly, and this now takes us into um, chapter, uh, chapter 6 all the way to chapter, the beginning of chapter 8. And as you see, as these seals are being opened, you quickly, you know, all manner of judgment, again, I'm not getting into details and all that, but what is clear is that you are seeing different judgments, I've said this characterizing the church of the old age. But then towards the end of chapter 6, you see there is an intensity of the judgment after the sixth seal has been opened. Look at verse 16 of chapter 6. It says, They call to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath, that word, wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can withstand it? Part of the challenges I had when I used to read this book over and over before was even though if I felt the final, final judgment and uh, thing was coming at the end, there was a lot. There were a lot of places in this book that the thing looked, I couldn't see how this wasn't final. And if you know that phrase, the great day of the wrath, which is similar to the great day of the Lord, and if you see it through scriptures, it is really pointing you to a final death. So remember I said, what you always see towards the end is a final judgment, but also a final reward. So what happens after chapter 6? You see chapter 7. In chapter 7, you now have this um, uh, 144,000 people that are now before the throne of God. Sorry, that was chapter um, 6. In chapter 9, in chapter 9, remember 6 to... Um, Am I in the right place now? Oh, no, no, sorry. This is, this is, sorry. It should have been in uh, chapter... Seven, not chapter nine. I don't know why I wrote chapter nine here. Chapter seven, it should be chapter seven, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this is chapter seven, verse 15. So, sorry, it, it may say chapter nine on, your, on the reference and your, on the... On the screen, but it's actually chapter seven. So remember, we are looking at the sequence in chapter, um, the sequence in from six, to, six one to eight verse five. So in chapter seven, we have this one hundred and forty-four thousand, twelve thousand people from each tribe of Israel. One forty-four thousand. And you want to say, oh, were there one forty-four thousand in the in the in the, is it one for the 4,000 people that will be saved? Is it one for the 4,000 people that are of a different Christian class? No. The one for the 4,000 is symbolic. You see them, you see one for the 144 here in chapter 7. You see one for the 4,000 also in chapter 14. And then you see 144,000 again. It repeated itself in chapter 21. Revelation is a lot of symbology. 144,000, 12 by 12 times 1,000. 12 
the number of the people of God, representing the number of people of God in the Old Covenant, because that's 12 tribes of Israel. And 12, the number of people in the New Covenant of God, 12 apostles. 1,000, well, some people just say that means completion. I would think that um, 105, verse 7 to 11, may point to about the eternality of God's covenant with these people up unto a thousand generations, however you want to interpret it, this one for 4,000 are those redeemed of the Lord of every age. And notice what it says. They get their reward. Remember, we're still in 6 to 8. This is 7, 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them from his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. If you know this kind, this reference, you know that it is pointing, to, if you go to Revelation chapter 21, the, what we always consider as the end, that same phrase is used. The sun will not beat the, down on them, nor any scorching heat. The, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. That takes you to Revelation chapter 22, almost like in the Garden of Eden, but a new Eden. And also the final... Um, uh, um, uh, picture of the end in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, there's a, 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 a living waters coming from the temple. I'm trying to just say this gives you a finality. Don't allow yourself to be too bogged down to the details. This isn't way too complex. 6, 1 to 8, 5 gives you the entirety of the church age and what happens when Jesus eventually returns it is a final, final judgment and final reward. You have the same thing for the next one, which is from verses 8, um, to, uh, eight verse, is it 5 or 6? 8, 5 or 6, uh, 8, 6 to 11, to the end of 11, the seven trumpets. Again, the trumpets come out success, successively, right? A lot of judgment, a lot of things. But as you get towards the end in chapter 11, I'm not going to go into the two witnesses thing there, but there's a seventh trumpet about to sound in 10. It sounds in 11. What happens when, it, when, when, when the seventh trumpet sounds? Verse 18 is crucial because it has both of the things that I'm talking about. So it says, the nations were angry for what again? Your wrath has come. The time for com has come for judging the dead. Judging the dead? That sounds like Revelation chapter 20 when it says the, the books were opened and the dead were judged. Or sounds like what Paul says that Jesus Christ will return to judge, to judge both the dead and the living. The final end. And read the end of verse 18 of chapter 11. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. But in between, in, for the salvation part in, 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 in verse, uh, look at verse 15 of chapter 11 and verse 18. The kingdom of, this, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. That is happening in chapter 11. The time has come for what? For rewarding, verse 18, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small. Can you see it? Can you see it? The same thing when you get to the section, the next section, which is 12, 1 to 15, verse, uh, 15 verses um, uh, uh, 2 to uh, 15, verse 2 to 4. Right? In verse 14, you have a horrible picture. In, uh, I, I, sorry, we didn't 
put this one there, but 14 verse 9 and 10 first tells you something. Look at what it says. Um, verse 10 to 11. 14 verse 10 to 11. They too, these are people who worship uh, the beast and its image, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of what? His wrath. Again. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels of the and of the lamb many times jesus said when he's coming back in matthew 24 he's going to come back with his angels in matthew 13 he says when he's going to return to separate the um um the uh, you know he says the kingdom of god is like you throw a dragnet and then there's the 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 you want to separate different things i think fish from i can't quite remember but he said that was going to happen when he will come with his holy angels and they will separate those of his followers and not and here he says that they will be tormented um, with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb compare that with 2 thessalonians 1 6 to 10 and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. That sounds final in 14. And still in that 14, you can even see that sounds like what you call hell fire, fire and brimstone. The same thing in chapter 20. But then if you then look at verse 19 to 20, it talks about the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 um, 1, stadia. Do you see it? Finality. It's the same thing. So that by the time you get to chapter 15, at the end of that, you get a final reward. What do you have? People who are playing harps before the throne of God and they are singing to him. Very similar to what you see in chapter 7 of the 144,000. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass flowing with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, they held harps given to them by God and they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Now let me say something. All of this is up... Uh, sorry, I forgot to say that in chapter uh, uh, 1 to 11... You don't see the introduction. You, you don't see who is behind all the evil. You don't actually see. They are then introduced to us in chapters 12, from chapters 12 all the way to maybe like chapter 17. There we meet this ferocious red dragon, right? Seven heads, ten horns. And then in chapter 13, we see that that, that dragon has proxies, three of them. One is a beast that rises from the sea, right? Also seven heads, ten horns. Then there's a beast that rises from the earth, who we also call the false prophet. And then later, we find a great prostitute that rides the beast called Babylon the Great. Now, what then happens later is the final judgment doesn't not just include people who are rebelling against God, but the final judgment includes these people, these entities as well. But I would say, if you want to see more of the judgment of people at the end and then the reward, look at chapter 19, uh, uh, chapter 16, verses 16 to 19, where it says that, again, it talks about the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. But then if you see the reward, 
is the what I like to call the Oambez of the Oambe of all Oambez, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, Blessed is anyone that is called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is another picture of the end. And then chapter 20. Chapter 20 is crucial because many people would say that, oh, there's going to be a millennial reign, an actual 1,000-year reign. And I would argue that actually the millennial reign, the millennial 1,000 years is already happening. In fact, we are 2,000 years into the 1,000 years. And you say, ah, but it's 1,000 years. Yeah, but don't forget that most, almost all the time, almost all the time, there may be one or two, there are a few exceptions. Almost all the time, the book of Revelation, numbers are symbolic. Remember, 144,000, that's 12 times 12 times 1,000. You don't understand that 1,000 literally. Why do we understand that here literally? And besides, if you look at the sequence, at the end of chapter 19, you have another final judgment. And the people were deceived to come into that final judgment. And then in the beginning of chapter 20, you said that Satan is bound so that he will deceive people no more. What does he need to deceive? He has already deceived the people that were finally judged. No, chapter 20, 1 to 6, gives us the picture of the church age. And then from verse 7, particularly from verse 8, all the way to the end, is that final end of the end. And so that when you see the final judgment towards the end of chapter 20, the final judgment towards the end of chapter 20, what comes after? Chapter 21, judgment and reward. We've always seen just that chapter 20 and 21. Many times we've seen it at the end of the end of the end. And what I'm trying to say with this recapitulated way of looking at the book of Revelation is that that has been happening. All of a sudden, do you see that the book of Revelation becomes smaller? It becomes smaller. And you should be then for less concerned about this detail to this one or this. I remember once somebody said this, the scorpions that had sting in their tails, that it was, they didn't, John they did not understand what helicopters were. So this was, you know, helicopters that could fire things. You start to match all of these things. Whereas we're not seeing the bigger picture. And you see repeated things there because of this framework. John could tell the people who were suffering in the, in, the, in, the, in the churches, those who are faithful, he says, you people should still remain faithful. Why? Because God wins. There are admonitions that continue to come because of this framework that has been laid out. One, if you are persecuted, remain patient. Don't give in. Two, don't be deceived. Calls for wisdom. And he's saying, not only is God with you, but God is the one who is sovereign over the story. And the victory of the story has already happened before these things were began to happen with you. And as I start bringing this to a close, um, as I said, maybe I should maybe spend a little more time on that, on chapter 21, because that is crucial. Remember the book, this, it's, all, it, it, it's lightning, what John does masterfully, even though he borrows this from Isaiah chapter 65. Have you ever heard the message of God doing something new? Behold, I do a new thing, right? Many times in churches where we just want to revive everybody, we bring, behold, I do a new thing. But actually, what you then see in chapter, uh, Isaiah first speaks about the new heavens and the new earth, but John expands on what this is. But it is borrowing from the very beginning of the Bible, where God created the heaven and the earth. And John is saying, 
all that was undone because of sin and rebellion, when God has brought the final judgment of evil, because Satan becomes, you see, we're introduced to Satan first, then the first beast, then the false prophet, then the whore. Then the whore was first judged, the beast were judged, then Satan was judged. And all those who brought about evil in the world. What God is saying is that to bring about the new heavens and new earth, I will put away the old and all that brings evil. And I will give my people new bodies, new everlasting life, and then I will truly make all things new. He said, it is done in Revelation 21. It is done. Jesus Christ said, it is finished on the cross. Now, the, the, the time between it is finished to it is done is when Jesus is in heaven orchestrating the events that brings the finality of his redemption plan to, the, to, uh, to, to fruition. So God said, I'm making all things new. Why? Because there's a new creation. There's a new Jerusalem. And there's a new Eden. In that book, in, in the book of Eden, you had the tree of knowledge of good and evil. By the end, in the new Eden, you have no tree of knowledge of good and evil. You just have the tree of life there. And then he also says this, and David has already given us this hint in Psalm, in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 17, verse 15, what we call the beatific vision in Revelation 22, verse 24. Remember, God told Moses, you cannot see my face and live. But we beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Philip said to, uh, to, to Jesus, show us the Father. He said, ah, Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't know anyone who has seen me has seen the Father? Yes, that was Jesus but still veiled in humanity. Yes. But in Revelation 22, verse 3 and 4, after it says there will be no more curse, the curse that was put in Eden, there will be no more curse. It then says, and they will see his face. The epitome of all our desires, all our longings, everything you've ever wished for, hoped for, longed for in this world, all the pleasures, put them all together, Press down, running over, and yet they will not be able to compare with what happens when we see. We will now, we will have the bodies to see the face of God because in the new heavens and the new earth, we will dwell with God forever. He says, they will be, the God, now the dwelling place of God is now with men. They will, they will be my people and I will be their God. We will live with God. Not in heaven, in somewhere in heaven because we are caught and raptured. No, in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be human beings after the order of Christ. That's why you have a resurrection. Just like Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 15? Christ's first fruit and those who are Christ that is coming. This, the, the perishable must put on imperishability. The mortal must put on immortality. So in other words, the book of Revelation is giving you all these pictures to say you win. For all those who have been martyred, right? He says, don't worry, be patient. But at some point, he gives them white robes. And we are singing before the throne of God, you win. Before the throne of God, 144,000 are, yes, you can see that they were coming from Israel. They were coming at the 12 tribes of Israel. But later you then see they are from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all around the world. Because Jesus has won. We win. And so, without knowing necessarily all the details of how things unfold, what we know is the framework. We win. Because we won in Christ. Let me tell you something about the Bible and the book of Revelation. 
Today, many people will say about fear. It's two things. Some people are saying, uh, we need to get scared, though. Why? Because X and X and X must happen. Fear, because these things may happen to you. Now there's terrible, we're not sure about the insecurity in our city of Lagos. We're not sure about the coronavirus and, you know, how it's spreading. So people are saying, because of all the things that can happen, fear. Then some others are saying, well, if you just hold on to Psalm 91 for Christians, right? No need to fear. On the basis of this, nothing will happen to you. So on the one hand, one is saying fear because something could happen to you. On the other hand, some are saying don't fear, nothing will happen to you. Do you see that they are operating from the same framework? The biblical framework changes it. It says, the book of Revelation says, something could happen to you. Because many times, Satan actually persecutes the Christians. And he gets, he gets one over them. All around, have you not seen? The church is being persecuted. The church suffers. People are being slaughtered. Part of the problem is that we who are in comfort, we get so scared because we are not used to living in this kind of persecuted way. But what you see in the book of Revelation is that is the normal way. By much tribulation, we enter the kingdom. And Jesus told his disciples, this is exactly what's going to happen to you in Matthew chapter 10. But then he says this. Stuff may happen to you. Stuff will happen to you, but don't fear. Do you see the difference? The one says, fear, because something will happen to you. The other one says, fear not, nothing will happen to you. Jesus says, something will happen to you, but do not fear. Why? Something will not happen to you. Wait a minute. I'm mistaken. What are you saying? Jesus says, fear not, fear not, something will happen to you, and fear not, something will not happen to you. What is happening? The first framework bases fear simply based on what can happen to you in this world? And so if it doesn't happen to you, if they can tell you it won't happen to you, even though they cannot guarantee, there's nothing to fear. But if they can't guarantee you, then there's something to fear. But you see, it is solely based in this world. When you get into the book of Revelation, it's saying there's stuff happening in this world, but there is another realm to look at it from, from the heavenly realm, such that the story of how this thing progresses is something may happen to you. Yes. But don't fear. Why? Because there's something else that will not happen to you. What Satan can do to you as a Christian, right, he cannot do to, he, what Satan can do to you as a Christian, right, he's not able to do what God will do to him. Satan is unable to do to you what God will do to him. Satan is able to do to you something that God can do to you. But Satan is not able to do to you what God will do to him. Because at the end of the book of Revelation, Satan, the beast, the woman that rides the beast, all of that thrown into the lake of fire. For those whose names are in the book of life, not in the book of fire. So he says, fear not. Why? Because there's only something they can do to you. The worst they can do to you is take away your life. But once you have eternal life, taking away your life just awakens you into the glory of presence of Christ. And when the, he returns with the resurrection, you will now receive a body that makes you live with him eternally. This is the comfort that the book of Revelation brings. As I said, it is realistic. It is realistic. It doesn't hold out false promises to us. And yet, it gives us confidence. And so, 
Just to close, as I said, the book of Revelation, the message of the book of Revelation is consistent and has to be consistent with the entire canon of Scripture. And we saw that last week. But what are, we are seeing with a new framework, a historical, the redemptive historical approach that shows us how things are recapitulated after the throne room vision of 4 to 5. What it does is that it takes the book of Revelation, applies it to the church in every age, both to the ones in seven um, uh, churches in Asia Minor, but it applies it to us. And as it does so, it gives us in um, uh, recapitulated pictures that always end with final judgment and final reward. It shows us what is characterizing the whole church age from Pentecost up until today, but it also shows us the end. And at the end, we see the unfolding of God's plan, God's sovereign plan for victory of his church in the victory of the Lamb, despite the opposition, the concerted opposition of Satan and his evil, um, and, and uh, the concerted evil opposition of Satan. And so that's why I say, I don't want us to be scared of this book. You can open it, you can read. Now, if you say, well, uh, you've not comforted me because they are telling me that I may suffer. First of all, as a Christian, are you not suffering? <laughs> have you never suffered before? And have you not come out through it? But second, even if you don't suffer in any physical way, you will still die. You, we will all still die, the thing we dread the most. And so God is saying, don't dread the thing that will most likely happen. What you should fear is me. But as you, if you come to me through Christ, you should never fear me. Because as we see in the book of Revelation, if God wins and you are with God through Christ, you win. And so Revelation wants us to look not just on what is going on around, but to look beyond it, to look not just in our present, look to eternity. As Paul said, though our momentary but light affliction is working for, uh, though our, though um, maybe I should, I should let me not let me quote it directly for what it says, and I'll end with this. We do not lose heart. Why? Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We are being renewed day by day by the things that we go through. For our light and momentary troubles, the troubles are light in terms of weight and momentary, short in terms of time. Why can he say that? And if you read the troubles he's gone through in that Second Corinthians 4 from verses um, uh, 7 all the way to, to 15, you want, uh, sorry, for, yeah, from 7 all the way to 15, you wonder how he can call it light in terms of weight and momentary in terms of time. Why? Because they are achieving for us an eternal glory. Eternal. That is time. In terms of time, it is eternal. The glory is eternal. That's why he can say the other is momentary. Eternal glory that far outweighs it all. That's why it is light. So instead of fixing our eyes on terrible interpretations of 5G and coronavirus and looking for the Antichrist and Mark of the Beast, instead of fixing our eyes there, because we know how this whole thing ends, you know what Paul says? So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let us pray.